Well, I want to begin our first sermon of the new year in talking about not adding or subtracting from the Bible. Again, I, it was strange that as I put together our reading list for our church last year, again in February I put together our reading list, today is the last day that we will actually be preaching through the Bible. Next week will be review on all that we have been talking about in the book of Revelation. So I find it interesting that here at a Bible church, Blue Point Bible Church, we would be talking about on the beginning of the year not adding or subtracting from anything in the Bible. Ultimately, that's what we stand for as a Bible church. So I want to take you through our last reading here in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verses 10 through 21, and then I'll begin detailing all that we're reading. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, and the murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his part from the tree of life and the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. These last couple weeks, I have been detailing the concepts which these last two chapters of, Re- of Revelation are pointing to. Ultimately, the manifold glory of God found in the new covenant. All of the events of Revelation point to the consummated reality of the new heavens and new earth, the coming out of heaven bride, the new Jerusalem, the tree of life, the healing of the nations, the river of the water of life, no more crying or mourning because the old covenant, the first things, have now passed away. There's no more curse of death. The living and the dead, through the fulfilling of God's hope of Israel, are now united to God through Jesus Christ. As revealed through Jesus and the apostles, he was the Messiah, as well as the mystery of the ages, and that would bring about the kingdom of God. That's the reality that we celebrate as the 21st century church on earth. We're not waiting for that. We're not waiting for the new heavens and new earth. We're not waiting for the new Jerusalem. We're not waiting for a day when there will no longer be crying or mourning or pain because we know that today we can find that in Jesus Christ if we understand how the kingdom of God has been made known. If you're looking for a tangible, physical expression of no more crying or mourning or pain, I imagine when I said that we aren't living there anymore, you said, wow, I watched the news this morning and I saw plenty of it. Or maybe in your own life, you might know that very well. So I'm not giving you a physical reality to say that that is, you know, oh, you must not be living in the same world I am. I know you are. However, the reality we know in Jesus Christ, the spiritual understanding of the kingdom of God reigning in the hearts and minds of God's people is where we can find the expression of no more crying or mourning or pain because that first order had passed away. None of us know that old order. We don't know what it feels like to worship God by following 613 commands. Or if you're religious, maybe you do. <laughs> Let's be real. Um, you know, again, you, you might be a very religious person who makes yourself have a bunch of commandments and things you have to follow. 
And then you would know very well the, the crying and mourning of the old covenant because that meant that you stand condemned in the eyes of God. That you'll never be good to God. You'll never be righteous. You'll never be able to do it. And I'll say amen. You can't. That's right. You'll never be able to. However, I don't live in that identity. I live in the identity of Romans chapter 8 verse 1. That the filthy, I'm not one of those. The, the dirty people, the, you know, the, the people that are practicing wrong things, I don't want to be identified as that. I want to be the one that washes his robe, enters into the gate, drinks of the water of life, partakes of the tree of life, and has the opportunity to enjoy the goodness of God. Ultimately, I believe that's why each and every one of you find yourself in a church on the first Sunday of the year. That should be our goal, to understand and live in that reality. The text I just read to you is the last invitation or the last thoughts of the Apostle John as he wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor. It has a rather sobering end, issuing a glorious invitation, all the while declaring plagues on those who would do harm to God's teaching or the proper understanding of what revelation is unveiling. Anyone who would do harm would take from this book or would add to the details of this book to give further confusion we read that the plagues of this book should be given to them and that they will not have access to the tree of life. Last week I detailed very clearly that the tree of life and the water of life is pointing to Jesus. This isn't a matter of you know making you hungry for leaves or making you very thirsty. This is simply pointing you to Jesus Christ. All of these pictures of trees and rivers and all these details are pointing you to Jesus, that in him you will be satisfied. The whole prophecy is built upon the hope of Israel, the entire book of Revelation, which is the gospel Jesus came proclaiming. And the Apostle Paul affirmed this as his only message. Whatever he preached, you would find in the law and the prophets. It makes sense that this prophecy, speaking of God being with his people, as revealed through the coming of the Lord and the resurrection of the dead, would have a city as its focus, the new Jerusalem coming out from heaven as from God. In the Old Covenant, the presence was seen as the temple in the midst of Jerusalem, the physical temple. If the physical temple was there, God was with you. God loved you. God is your God. You are his people. If the temple was not there and the people were moved into Assyria or moved into Babylon, God hated them. God was not with them. He was not their God, and they were not his people. You would see very clearly the mourning and crying that would come through that. Nothing like telling somebody, God is not your God, and you are not his people. That's rather a wicked um, pronouncement, right? So as we, we look at Revelation, that's the story we're seeing. There's one side that's going to receive, you are not my people. And there's a side that's being called the beloved, being called as God's people. The new Jerusalem is going to be the living remnant. The old Jerusalem is going to be a byword. They are coming under judgment. They stand in judgment in regards to God. I explained this history in a sermon about two weeks ago. All of the marriage details that point to Jesus Christ and his church. And I gave you a summation of Jerusalem's history, or what I called the bride's history. And I showed you where Jerusalem starts, going all the way back to 2400 B.C., and how we see with Abraham and Melchizedek, and then ultimately how King David, King Solomon, and how Jerusalem comes to be the focal point of God's kingdom. The Old Covenant highlighted life barred from the Garden of Eden. We might say the presence of God due to sin. It pointed to the time of the Messiah, which would usher in the restored kingdom of God. Dare we say a restored Garden of Eden. And as we're reading here in Revelation chapter 22, that's what we're getting the picture of. A restored Garden of Eden. A reality that we're supposed to know. Everybody in this room is living, or if you know Jesus, you should be living in a reality of being in a restored Garden of Eden. You have access to the Tree of Life. You can live forever. You have access to the Water of Life. Therefore, you will never thirst again. And you get to see all the glorious realities. Again, if 
you picture gold roads and you know all the details that everybody comes up with, land flowing with milk and honey, that's fine. But you have to find what that points to. That's the physical description. There's something that those things point to, a greater detail. Um, again, milk and honey isn't always good news to many people in the 21st century. There's a lot of allergies in our culture. So uh, that wouldn't exactly be good news that it was in the Old Testament. You tell people in the Old Testament milk and honey, they, you know, that sounds like really good news. You tell people with nut allergies and everything else you think of in our culture, it's like, okay, well, I don't know if we should open the gates. It gets scary. So, again, we want to get the actual picture of what we're reading about in Revelation. We want to understand the depths of what this is pointing to. I don't want to offer each and every one of you or the world a fantasy of gold roads and, you know, a big palace where Jesus is living and, you know, you get to see all your loved ones. Unfortunately, that's what it seems that the Christian gospel is to a lot of people. And, you know, when we sum up the Bible, they say, one day you'll go to heaven and you'll get to see Jesus and you'll be with him. And I'm not going to drag you through all the details I've heard. I wouldn't do that to anybody. So, again, really seek out the details of what Revelation is pointing to. We see here in Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. These are those who have not accepted the righteousness of Christ. The, the ones who wash their robes are the ones who have accepted the righteousness. Those that are stuck outside are those that are still stuck and identified by their sin. Those who refuse, who are not of the elect, if we're going to get spiritual here, again, election is just a very spiritual word, but if we're, you know, they are not of the elect, they are left outside, covered in sin, failing to have a relationship with their God, thirsty, filthy, hungry, and dead. That's the picture we get of the people that are outside of the grace of God. A relationship that we have when we put on Christ and we put on the robes is a relationship characterized by the knowledge of God, a strong foundation, peace, joy, grace, and no condemnation. Those are the privileges that we get in Christ. All the details of Revelation point to the reality we now have with God through Jesus. The solution for dissatisfaction in these regards is not to depict strange theories in the future. Instead, it's spending time understanding and praising God for all that he has accomplished. That's the gospel. That's where the story lies. In the first century, we must go back to the first century and understand the details of Revelation in their proper context. That's what we have been doing for the past three months here at the church, today serving as a sort of summation of that. If we don't do that, we run the risk of adding words to the prophecies of this book. What we see most Christians doing and propagating a hope that is adding to the writings of the book of Revelation. Surely, the church has to answer all the strange theories that have been offered in regards to this book, not to mention the failure to teach properly the time texts found within the book. Again, we would talk about blood moons. If you can find me a blood moon within the book of Revelation and all the stuff that John Hagee has been preaching, please let me know. Otherwise, we have to come to the summation that he has added to the prophecy, or for the sake of some of his congregants, he has taken away the clarity that Revelation was intended to give. He has added and subtracted from this book. Dr. Don K. Preston says, if there is one fact so indisputably present and yet so inexplicably ignored in the study of Revelation, it is the overwhelming sense of imminence found so many ways within the book. And I'm just going to share a couple of these time statements with you this morning. Here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, we begin the book with a time statement. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants 
the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated to his angels by the bondservant John. So here you go. First verse, all of that was happening in Revelation was going to happen soon. The next thing I would ask is, when was the writing written? I will tell you it was written between A.D. 62 to 64, somewhere within that time frame. Um, so you, you again, soon, I don't know how you, you make that work. Um, 2,000 years later, we're still saying soon. It's, it's going to happen soon. Um, that doesn't seem to work for me. Um, also, we, we would ask, who is this written to? If this is a letter, who was it written to? And I would posit it was written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, as, as is revealed here in the next three chapters. Turning to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 5, we read, Therefore, and again, this is a letter to, the, a message to Ephesus. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and remo- will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, we see very clearly that he is coming to Ephesus. Um, I would urge you to look up the church at Ephesus on a map in the 21st century and you won't find it. So he either had to have come to them or we would have a problem with this writing. Already evident, just two chapters in. Let's continue. Chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore repent, or I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. That was a message to Pergamum. Again, find the church in Pergamum today. You won't. They're they're not there. That church that was written to is simply not there because he came, and he took the lampstand when these people did not walk worthy. Moving into chapter 3, verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast that what you have so that no one will take your crown. That was a message to the church at Philadelphia. Again, that's not talking about our neighbors one state away. That's talking about the church in the ancient um, Middle East. So again, you would find no church there today. Unfortunately, I'll let everybody in the room know that you won't find any of the seven churches in Asia Minor as a congregation in the Middle East today. Um, Again, very strong indictment against the church. If you read this prophecy, understand what it was saying to the church and how they were called to persevere, and yet many didn't. Going into chapter 10, as we move forward here, Revelation chapter 10, verse 6, it says, And he swore by them who live forever and ever, who created heaven and earth and the things in it, that there would no longer be a delay. 2,000 years would surely be a delay, if you were to ask me. If you told me you were going to give me something, and then you said, well, I meant 2,000 years from now, but you called it soon, I would call you a liar. That's just, just simply what it would be. So, again, very clearly in chapter 10, we find a problem. Chapter 11, verse 4. I'm sorry, 11, 11, verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Um, again, that would take us some time. I would urge you to go back on the podcast and listen to what we talked about as the first, second, and third woe. If you understand what the first and second woe was, you would have to ask yourself, what came quickly after that? And if you weren't going to posit it came quickly after that, if you tried to offer a 2,000-year explanation, I would simply again call you a liar. It doesn't work with the context that we're reading. Chapter 12, verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. I've listened to Christians preach about the reign of the devil and how the devil's had control over the world, and it sounds like he's had control over the world the entire time. It doesn't sound like it's been a very short time for the devil, if you listen to most futurist Bible teachers. It seems that Satan's been in control for 2,000 years now. And he was in control the millennia before that over Old Covenant Israel. So I have some questions. If his time was short and you know, he was going to have a short reign, what happened? You know, we have a problem here with these time texts that are found in the book of Revelation. Moving into chapter 14, verse 4. 
These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who have followed the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from men as the firstfruits to God and the Lamb. Again, you see the firstfruits. If the firstfruits were purchased in the first century, it, it took 2,000 years to save anybody else. You would see that, that that becomes a problem for a proper understanding. And then finally, our last chapter here. This is important to note. Our last chapter in Revelation, you have five time statements found in the one chapter, starting in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Verse 7. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. Verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. There's no way that you can take this book that was written to the seven churches in the first century in Asia Minor and say, These events are still waiting to be played out in the 21st century. That doesn't make any sense. 2,000 years cannot be made to mean quickly, at hand, or soon. That does not work with the context of our Bible. In my estimation, Don Preston says it best. Bible students should bow to these forceful time statements. They say what they say, and they cannot be nullified or changed or disregarded. Essentially, I believe that it is the point of what we read in verses 18 through... That that is the point of what we read in verses 18 through 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecies of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. Again, pay attention to the time statements. If that, you would sum that up with pay attention to the details that are in this book. Don't add to them. Don't subtract to them. Don't make them confusing. Don't, don't change the writing. Leave it as it is so the people would clearly understand. Again, those, were, those words were rather strong indictment against the false teachers which were evident in the first century. We see them written about in our Bible, as well as documented in history. A like-minded passage that comes to mind is the Apostle Paul's admonishment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He there rebukes the church to be worthy of that which they build upon, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Again, make sure that you're understanding the teachings of Jesus and walk worthy of how you're building on top of that foundation. The Apostle Paul would write an indictment against two men named Hymenaeus and Philetus. They sought to add to the teachings of Jesus or subtract from them. They said, well, the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. The temple is still standing. You're still obligated to the old covenant law. You're still obligated to the temple. And that was their way of taking away from all that Jesus said, because that wouldn't make much sense. Jesus said that all of this would happen, the resurrection of the dead, the last time events, when the temple was no longer standing, not one stone left upon another. So how could the resurrection of the dead occur prior to the temple not uh, being destroyed? You see how those two people spoken about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Hymenaeus and Philetus, were indeed false teachers because they were taking away from what God had already established. They were confusing that generation of believers. The goal or intention of the book of Revelation was to write a vision given to the seven, the Apostle John's vision given to him to write to the seven churches of Asia Minor to encourage them and give them insight on how to persevere and keep their lampstand. You might say keep their faith, keep the blessing that God has for you. It was intended to make clear the details of the last days and how the mystery of God would be revealed. The soon coming of the Lord in fulfillment of the prophecies, the hope of Israel, 
was to take place in that generation. I have shown you through three months of study and preaching that the events of the book of Revelation all take place at the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and cannot be applied anywhere else. If I told you soon, within a certain time frame, let's say a couple days, that a man was coming to your house with a check, he would be dressed in an all-black outfit. Then all of a sudden, a man dressed in an all-black outfit shows up on your porch, yet he doesn't have a check. When you asked me about this, I told you, well, I meant he was coming soon, but that, that wasn't him. The, the guy I'm talking about is coming in 2,000 years. You, you'd be pretty aggravated. You'd probably call me a liar. Um, it, it sounds confusing to even begin to ponder how that would even make any sense to anybody. Again, that doesn't work. I don't imagine my words would be trusted all that much after that. I, I don't think anybody in the room would trust me. All you really have to do is add some money to it, promise somebody something, and fail, and there you go. You're not trusted anymore. What a way to give someone false hope. You know, hey, don't worry. I'll help out. He'll be there in 2,000 years from now. Why do we fail to apply that logic to our Bible? That needs to be a question that we, especially our congregation, is asking the nations. Why do we fail? The same logic when you're asked a simple question, we pick up our Bible, we just change the way we think. You know, if I told you soon, anybody in this room, if I said, I will be to you, I will come over soon. And then you ask me, Mike, you know, it's been 30 years. You know, you've never come over. You told me you would come over soon when you first started your ministry here. And I said, well, I meant one day soon, you know, just eventually I'll come over. That's not soon. That doesn't make any sense. Soon is a word that gives you a definite time frame and and gives you a positive affirmation that it is going to happen. So again, the um, the Apostle John's vision here, I would charge a lot of people in the church with, do we understand what he's talking about? Are we still waiting for these events? If we are, then we have a problem because... They were supposed to take place back then. I don't, I don't run the habit. If you promise me once that you know, you're going to come over and then you don't come over, the next time you promise me, I'm not the type of person that says, oh, don't worry, they definitely will. I mean, I'm the type of person that would doubt a lot after that. And I believe there's a lot of people that are just like me. I believe every one of us are just like me. That if your promise has failed, you're not going to keep hoping in that same promise. Dr. Preston remarks, since when does saying one thing and meaning something else create trust in the one who uses words so carelessly? That's not the case. So I could take you through a host of time statements that you can find in Scripture. One of the ones I want to bring you to this morning is Matthew chapter 16, a favorite time statement of mine. Matthew chapter 16, verses 27 through 28. Here we read, For the Son of Man is going to come with the glory of his fathers. Again, we were reading about the coming of the Lord in Revelation 22. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then will repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, I don't believe anybody in this room believes that anybody standing in front of Jesus in the first century is still alive. It just, you know, it just doesn't work. So again, we would understand that while they were alive, these events had to occur. We see in Revelation chapter 22, verse 10, the same promise, that his reward is with him. So many uh, Bible teachers that I know, they love to kind of weasel their way through the Bible, and they'll say, well, Matthew chapter 16 was fulfilled in the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 17. Well, the problem I would have with that is if he was talking about a couple days later, where are the angels? In Matthew chapter 17, remember he says he will come in the glory of his father with angels. Where are the angels? 
Where are the rewards? There are no rewards given in Matthew chapter 17. And why would Jesus say only some of them would be alive if it was only going to be six days later? Only some of you will be, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming. If it was six days later, I imagine he would say something like, I'll see you all in a couple days. Not some of you standing here will not taste death until you see me coming in the kingdom. Again, is Jesus intending to confuse people? I don't believe so. I believe Jesus is very clear in regards to what he's saying to these disciples, that this event, this coming of the Lord, this reward that you are waiting for, will come while some of you are indeed alive. Revelation 22.12 is the verse that makes the same point. At the consummation of the coming of Christ, which would occur while some were living in that generation, they would see the ultimate, fully manifest kingdom of God. That was the mystery of the ages. That's what they longed for. That's what they wanted. This was the salvation ready to be revealed. Yesterday on social media, I came across the following statement. It's time for us to look at salvation as not whether the person goes to heaven or hell, but rather that he knows or he does not know what God has done for him. It could not have been said any better. Sadly, many are focused on far-off realities, having no substance, rather than knowing the details that are revealed through Scripture. That's the goal. I don't want to give you a far-off hope, and hopefully that'll be what'll you know, satisfy you for Sunday morning. I want to give you what the Scriptures are indeed teaching and build upon that as we go through 2016. There shouldn't be a quick-fix gospel that we're just offering to anybody we meet. We should be telling them and inviting them into the congregation that way they could be building their lives upon the substance of Jesus' teachings, not simply what we might make up in our best moment. That, that's not the goal of the Bible. That would be adding or subtracting from the prophecy of the book. We don't want to do that. Dr. Don Preston further remarks, if we can identify the mystery of God, we can correlate it with Babylon because the mystery of God and the judgment on Babylon, which we read about in Revelation, both occur at the same time at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The mystery of God was that Jesus would bring together Jew and Gentile. Again, this is explained in Ephesians chapter 3. Very clearly, the mystery of the ages was that Jew and Gentile needed to be reconciled to God in one body, not two separate men. They needed to be brought together. One Bible commentator said, the time of the mystery, that is, the Gentiles should come into the church on equal footing with the Jews, not having to first become Jews themselves, had finally arrived in the first century. The predominantly Jewish nature of the church was to be ended by the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. David Shilton, in his book, Days of Vengeance, wrote, This mystery is a major aspect of the letters of Ephesians and Colossians, the union of believing Jews and Gentiles in one church without distinction. That's the mystery of the ages. How were the Gentiles going to come and share in the glories of God with the Jews? How would the Jews be saved from the Old Covenant? All of that was what Jesus was coming to make known. It is vital that we see how truly revolutionary that was. The fact that Jew and Gentile can now come to God without partiality, without a veil, without condemnation, and we can actually approach God, a loving God, who has our best interest in mind. G.K. Beale, a noted Bible commentator, notes, the declaration of perfect communion between God and humanity is coined in the language of several Old Testament prophecies. These prophecies, among which Ezekiel 37, 27, and Leviticus 26, verses 11 through 12, are foremost predicted a final restoration in which God himself would live in the midst of his people. He would be their God, and they would be his people. Simply put, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 separated Judaism from Christianity. Judaism was a God-ordained religion. 
This made it possible for Judaizing teachers to deceive and confuse people as long as the temple still stood. As long as that temple was there, it was a detriment to the people of God. It was the one, th- it was the one thing they appealed to, to give people, to, for people to give up paganism, yet this would not be the, focusing on the temple would not be the way to lead people to Jesus Christ. It was another thing to call on the Jews to lay aside Judaism, which was given to them by God and at one time acceptable to God. Therefore, we can see how the Judaizers would have used this to oppose the first century church. But when Jerusalem fell and that temple was destroyed, they could no longer use this as a means to confuse people. Revelation reveals the A.D. 70 final end of the old covenant order and the full establishment of God's new order, the new covenant, how man would now relate to God through Jesus Christ. The common confusion many people have in regards to placing these events in the past is what now? Okay, so you're saying we're past those moments, we're living past the end times, what do we do now? How are we to properly build or even use this book in a way that is effective in our 21st century lives? A valid question indeed. How do we build properly, one might say, without adding or subtracting from God's word and the, fa- the foundation of Jesus and his teachings. We must be careful. We must be careful if we're going to do this. And I believe that's what we want to do this year, is we want to build on the foundation of what Genesis and Revelation are revealing in their proper context. But we want to understand them in our life. We want to put them into practice in the daily walkings of the 21st century. But again, we must be careful. There are so many interpretations and theories out there. Many times with self-seeking agendas, even as simple as having the teacher as their own view. The the teacher becomes the the, the expositor or the Bible. The the teacher, whatever the teacher says, that's what the Bible says. And that has become a detriment to Christianity. I'm personally against any, I am personally against any view that seeks to take scripture with all of the time texts found in it and the narrative pointing to a consummated story and make these events yet future and make any of these details in my Bible yet future. So I will be very clear, I refuse to make any of these details in the proper context, yet future. I won't do that. I would posit that all the details were leading up to the end of that generation. We live in the fulfilled reality of what all of this pointed to. I've always explained it in this way. If I wanted to build a homeless shelter my entire life to benefit homeless people, eventually I would have to do the work of building the homeless shelter, right? And and some people might be able to come and enjoy the benefits of my work while I'm working, Yet it would take me to finish my work before I could bring that to bear on all that I intended to do. So what you're seeing through the Bible is God building his quote-unquote homeless shelter. He's building it. He's going through the work of building it. But the full effect and the full majesty of that homeless shelter won't come until it's fully built. The walls are installed. There's rooms. There's food. There's everybody working in a cohesive order. That's what God is doing through your Bible. He's creating a story that you will understand as true that you will understand as reasonable, and that which you can build your life upon. You see, the work of the homeless shelter would become different after I already built it. You see, the the work during building like a home, put it in a very practical form. As I'm building the homeless shelter, I would have to build walls, I would have to go through all the stuff of building the shelter. Once it's built, now I can actually spend my time focusing on the homeless. You see, God here is giving you a story of how he wants to deal with his people. He starts, he has to expose your sin. He has to show you that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Because if you're ever going to come to get to know Jesus, you would have to see all the details of what God did through Old Covenant Israel. And that's why God paints you a beautiful story from Genesis to Revelation on what he did for his people. 
Now it's our job not to force these events into the future and say, God's still trying to do that. God is done. He's done his work, and it's time for us to walk worthy and build upon that. I will always, I will also note this. Nothing in my interpretation or understanding of Scripture is based upon a flaw in my view. Again, something I heard this week was that I believe certain things because my full preterist view forces me to believe them. I'm going to be the first person to tell everybody in this room at the beginning of the new year, there is not one passage of the scriptures or any teaching in the Bible that I have ever said, well, I must believe that because I believe this. I don't do that. I believe we need to walk worthy. We need to examine our Bible. We need to study to show ourselves approved. We need to search the scriptures to see what is true. That's the way we walk worthy of building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. That would be a rather dishonest, dishonest handling of Scripture, and I wasn't very happy to receive that accusation that I might believe things because I'm forced into a corner. I'm namely speaking about national Israel and things of that matter. Um, I would say that if I was to be dishonest in that matter, that would simply be also the um, adding and subtracting from Scripture. So I'm excited to have a completed reading and preaching through the entire Bible that we did all throughout 2015. As we move into the new year, I'm excited about all that God will produce in and through us and what he will continue to do as we walk worthy of the manifold wisdom of God. James White, a popular Christian apologist, made the following remark in his book, Pulpit Crimes. When the Bible is mishandled and sloppily proclaimed, men's ideas replace God's truth. Reading into the text ideas and concepts that would have been foreign to the original writers and beyond their intention is eisegesis rather than appropriate activity of exegesis. In other words, it's inserting your own opinion rather than drawing the opinion that should, or, that should be there by the original writer. Sadly, it seems that this has happened by and large in the Christian church. Now it has become an issue that Bible teachers no longer feel the need to even re-examine their teachings or stand up to controversy and challenge in regards to the details of the Bible. They are comfortable in their man-made teachings. can't tell you how hard it was to find somebody to debate me on what they believe. You believe in this. I believe in this. Let's challenge each other. Nobody wants to stand up to the test. Why bother? Everybody's comfortable with man-made teachings. Everybody's comfortable with adding and subtracting from the prophecies as long as it fits what we want it to say. That seems to be where we're at in the church. So they're comfortable in these teachings, and I would say we need to search the scriptures. We are in dire need of revival and reformation in the body of Christ. Noted reformer and Bible teacher, as well as a man largely responsible for the current preterist reformation that is taking place, Max King once remarked, when the world-ending Battle of Armageddon and the end times and all those details is returned to its biblical place in redemptive history and Christians cease to preach and anticipate some future catastrophic end of the world as a solution to world problems and instead we give our undivided attention to preaching and practicing God's consummated work, Christianity will have a much greater appeal in the world. Rather than being seen as propagating a hope of life that is antithetical to and therefore beyond life on earth. Again, you know, obsession with heaven and going somewhere else. God's going to make it better somewhere else. Instead of offering that, Christianity will be seen, will be accepted, and appreciated as a fulfilled hope that brings everything on this planet to God's word to bear on everything in this planet. Again, that, that's the goal. We want to bring this book to bear on everything that we see, but we're not going to do it falsely. We're not just going to rip texts and say, this is how it applies, or this is what God is saying in this regard. Instead, we're going to study, we're going to do the hard work, and we're going to put all the teachings in their proper context and then build upon that foundation. That's a challenge, amen? I say that's a challenge. It will be those of us, it will be those thoughts that will lead us into 2016. 
preaching and practicing God's consummated work in Christ. Next week, we will finish our reading through Revelation with the time of interaction, discussion, and work in Christ. We will also finish our reading with a time of challenge for each and every one of you. Before we begin our Lord's Table celebration this morning, I want to share this new Bible plan that I mentioned this morning with you. Christian apologist and Reformed writer J.I. Packer, he once noted, any Christian who is worth their salt reads the Bible at least once every year. Since I have served in the pastorate here, each year I have offered an opportunity for us to read through the Bible every year. This year I want to share with you the Legacy Bible Reading Plan. You see, this plan is unique that it... I'm not going to read off my notes. I'm just going to explain. I know the, I know the plan. So uh, what the goal of this plan is to bring you through the books at your own pace, the books of the Bible. Again, last year I gave you a detailed plan. And, you know, Every week you were supposed to read a certain passage. This year, for January, for example, you could get started today um, reading through Genesis and Exodus at your own pace, your own time. Um, and then you, you read through those books and then you move into February. Also, each month... You will read three psalms per week and one chapter of Proverbs a day. Again, it, it's really not that much. If you were to s- section out 30 minutes of your day or 20 minutes of your day to read your Bible, you would be able to deal with all of this beautifully. You would finish Genesis and Exodus in the month. Um, again, there's sometimes, let, let's be honest, when we're reading books, you pick up a book, you say, I'm sitting at the doctor's office, I have about 20 minutes, I could read 10 pages. Right? That's, that's fair. Um, maybe on Thursday you have a coffee date that you'll be sitting at the coffee shop for 30, 45 minutes you know, with nothing to do or waiting for your guest. You could sit down and read through about 20 pages. You, you see, allow yourself the freedom to understand where and when you can read and you know, also be devoted in your reading and find time. Um, as you go through all of this, you'll have read, by the end of the year, you'll have read the entire Bible. Um, one of the things that we're not offering yet, but later in the year we'll offer is a time for us to meet and talk about our Bible reading that we're going through, maybe some questions, some challenges. We'll possibly have something on a Saturday that you can come and get some questions answered or even just fellowship with other believers. So the goal of this is to allow you to read the Bible at your own pace, allow you to challenge you to read the Bible, give you a plan, and ultimately um, challenge you to read the Bible in its context. We don't want to read just Bible verses. We want to read entire books of the Bible. So that's what uh, we're going to be reading through this year. I want to encourage you to heed the concepts that... uh, I'll be sending out emails throughout the week. I'll be uh, challenging you in regards to reading through your Bible, um, especially as we get started in the new year. And um, I believe that God will give us the wisdom as we seek to understand his. Amen? All right. Well, with that, I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward, our elders to come forward, and we will begin our Lord's Supper celebration this morning.